All right, so our scripture passage for this morning is in the Old Testament. Once again, we've been in the Old Testament a bunch of times, uh, and we're going to be in the Old Testament for this uh, week as well. In Numbers chapter 6, Numbers, how many of us know where the book of Numbers is? Kids, if you, uh, if you want, you can, uh, you can remember the book of Numbers this way. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Sing that over and over and over and over again, and you will have the first five books of the Bible memorized. And the fourth of those five books is Numbers. Numbers chapter 6. We're going to read verses 22 through 27. And these are the words that God told Moses to tell Aaron to bless to proclaim over the people or declare over the people when they would bless them at the end of a tabernacle service uh, in the Old Testament church. So beginning at verse 22 of Numbers chapter 6, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord Turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so this is our uh, final look actually at, um, at uh, the order of service. We've been doing this for a few weeks now, looking at the order of service, trying to understand why it is we order our worship services the way we do. Uh, we haven't covered every element. In fact, we're, we're not talking about the offering and we're not talking about communion and prayer. And that's simply because uh, in the interest of time, we couldn't do each and every element uh, in our order of service. Uh, so we've limited ourselves to the call to worship, to confession, to uh, hearing God speak to us. And then today, to the benediction. But what I hope you'll have noticed, and, and if you haven't, let me point it out to you right now, there's a deliberate structure to our worship order. And that deliberate structure is set up in order that we might rehearse the gospel in the way we worship. So when we hear the call to worship, we are confronted with God's holiness. And we respond to that holiness with, with a, an admission of who we are as sinful people who don't deserve to be in his presence, and so we confess our sin. And then God forgives our sin and, and pronounces that forgiveness upon us. And then in response to that, we offer ourselves to him as symbolized in our collection. And then God strengthens us in the faith by giving us his word that, that we, we listen to and he strengthens us in our faith through communion and then he sends us out into the world with the final element, the one that we're gonna talk about today. Now this element is the shortest, no doubt, but it is by no means the least important. This is what we call the benediction comes from two Latin words, bene, which means good, and dictus, which is word. So benediction is good word. And the question is, why do we do the benediction the way we do? We have a pretty formal 
benediction in our church, and not every church tradition does it the, the way that we do it. Why do we do it that way? Do we just do it because we need some way to close the service so that we know it's over and it's time to go home? Absolutely not. In fact, the benediction, the benediction is so big that I would go as far as to say that the benediction explains the meaning of your life. It is that important. It is that significant. What I mean by that is this. If you and I really understood what makes us tick, if we understood what drives us, if we we understood what motivates us, what, what makes us pursue the things we pursue, what makes us do the things we do, if we really understood how our hearts worked, we would get, we would understand the significance of the benediction, so much so that that your whole life would flash before your eyes every time you heard that benediction. I remember talking to a person once after a church service, this is a long time ago, and this person was telling me about how they had gone through a very, very traumatic period in their lives where they 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 were experiencing severe depression, uh, uh, like clinical depression, okay? Not just feeling down, but, but just in a dark, deep, dark pit. And they were despairing. Uh, but they would come to church. And every week they would come to church and they couldn't sing the songs. They couldn't bring themselves to sing the songs. They, they, they couldn't pray. They had not prayed for a long time, in fact. Uh, they just couldn't get themselves to do that. They were too distracted to even listen to the sermon. They couldn't handle even 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 allowing, even letting it in. But they were desperate. The reason they came every week anyway was because they were absolutely desperate to hear the benediction. They were desperate for it. And you know why? It's because they got it. They understood it. This is the meaning of your life, my friends. The benediction is the meaning of your life. You see, the reason we do what we do the reason we chase the things we chase, the reason we work so hard at the things we work hard at, trying to achieve them, is because we are all seeking God's benediction. We cannot live without it. And so we're gonna look here at Numbers chapter six. And like I said, this is the, these are the words that Aaron and his sons, who were the high priests, they were to, to speak these uh, words over um, over the people, God, at, people of God at the end of the tabernacle service. And we're going to see uh, what the benediction is. We're going to see why we need it. And we're going to understand how we can get it. So let's have a look at it together. First of all, what is it? Uh, very quickly, a little uh, ex- explanation about the structure of these verses, particularly 24, 25, and 26. There's something in Hebrew literature called parallelism, Hebrew parallelism, And what it basically means is this. Um, You say the same thing a different way in order to flesh out the meaning of it. So, taking our passage here, the Lord bless you and keep you. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, it means the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, that means the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And so that's how the structure goes. But, but what is being offered in the blessing of God, in the benediction of God? What is God offering? In one word, it's this. 
grace. Now, we often uh, define grace as God's undeserved favor, and that is absolutely true. But it is so much more than that. You know, when we think of God's grace, when God is, is being gracious to us, oftentimes we think of it kind of like as a, as a stance toward us or as an attitude toward us. God, God's attitude toward us is one of grace. He doesn't have an angry attitude toward us. He doesn't have a frustrated or disappointed attitude toward us. He has a gracious attitude toward us. But it is so much more than that. Grace in Scripture means God's active relational presence in our lives. Let me say that again. Grace is God's active relational presence in our lives. Let me, let me unpack this for you a bit. Look at that first line. The Lord bless you and keep you. What does it mean for God to bless us and keep us? Well, it means that God is willing our good. It means that God is committed to do what is best for us. That's the blessing part because we are his treasured possession. That's the keeping part. And you know, when God commits to something, okay, he actually commits to accomplishing, achieving the thing that he is committed tonight to you. Um, oftentimes, look, when we say bless you to someone, hey, God bless you, like, let's say someone does something nice to you and, and you respond by saying, God bless you. What we're kind of saying is, you know, I wish you well. I hope that God is good to you. I hope that things turn out well for you, that kind of thing. And then we just sort of move on with our lives. Like, when you say God bless you to someone, they're out of your head the very next minute and you're on to the next thing. But that's not how it works with God. When God blesses us, he acts. He executes the blessing. He gets actively involved in our lives to actually achieve the blessing that he has in store for us. And that sounds phenomenal, but listen, <laughs> this also trips people up. Very often this trips people up because, you know, it sounds nice, right? God bless me. I love it. God wants what's best for me. I love it. God is for me. Sounds fantastic. But we often think about those things through the particular grid of what I think is best for me. God wants what's best for me? Oh, that's awesome. I know what's best for me too. And we say, well, well, God's blessing means that, that, that here's what I want. And God is going to endorse that. He's going to put his stamp of approval on that. And he's going to, uh, he's going to get on board with my program, so to speak. But that's not how it works with God. Isaiah 55 verse 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways. Friends, we need to be careful. We need to be very careful about thinking we know what's best for us. Here we are in the middle of the most bizarre period of history in the last decades called the COVID-19 pandemic. And we have a lot to be worried about. People are, are getting sick. People are dying. The economy's tanking. People are losing their jobs. And if we interpret God's blessing in the midst of all of those circumstances as, well, God is going to do for me what I think is best for me, well, there's a lot of us that are going to be tremendously disappointed. 
Because very often God doesn't do what we want. He seems to do the opposite and we don't understand it. And that's because God's blessing is actually very, very different and far, far more important than you and I think. Look at the next phrase. We're still on point one. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now for the ancient Hebrews, understand, the greatest experience that they could have was to be bathed in God's glory. We call it the beatific vision. It's the idea that God's grace and glory and beauty and majesty and love uh, uh, shine down on us in the same way that the sun shines down on us. You know how uh, this week has been a really nice week. The weather's been great. There's been lots of sunshine. And those of us who have been out and about, we felt that the, that the sun is stronger than it was in the dead of winter. And so you can feel its warmth on you and it feels just so wonderful. You wanna bathe your whole body in the warmth of that sunlight. Well, that's what the, the blessing is getting at. You get a sense of God's love. You get a sense of his presence in your life. And, and this is huge, okay? We're starting to get closer to the full scope of it. We've gone from the Lord bless you and keep you to the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And what it's offering is the experience of the presence of God in a, in a personal and tangible way. Let me try to illustrate what I'm getting at this way. Uh, it was probably two years ago now, almost two years ago now, there was a royal wedding. Harry and Meghan, I think that's her name. Yeah, Meghan got married. And there hadn't been one for a number of years, so people are very excited about this. And so thousands, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets in London to get a glimpse of Harry and Meghan making their way to the church where they were going to exchange their vows. And so those people were attending the wedding in a sense. But when you got to the church, there were only 600 people who were given seats, privileged enough to get, be given seats in the, the church itself to witness the exchange of vows. And so that group was smaller. And then there were only 200 people who were invited to a private reception after the ceremony. Now, every one of those people from the hundreds of thousands, oh, and by the way, there were also 2,600 citizens of, the, of uh, Britain who were uh, allowed to stand in the courtyard at Buckingham Palace. So that was another group of people. And all these groups of people were in the presence of the couple. But who got to sit beside them at dinner? Only their closest family, only their closest friends got to be in the presence of Harry and Meghan in that way, face to face, you see. And listen, all human beings, no matter where we live on this earth, we are all in the presence of God. God is omnipresent, and so you cannot escape the presence of God. But the yearning that we have and the promise of the blessing is to have the face to face attention of God, to know as he looks upon us that he loves us, that he is with us, that he has got us. That's the promise in the benediction. And then it goes even one level deeper. The last line, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. What an interesting phrase, hey? The Lord turn his face towards you. You know the old 
Older translations would say, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And countenance is not just your face itself. It's actually uh, your facial expression. It's a positive facial expression. And this is a more intense attention even than, than having God's face shine on us. And if you're a parent, you will completely understand what this is getting at. When you have a child, especially when you have your first child and you're a new parent, it's, it's pretty remarkable how much you love this child immediately. I mean, they have done nothing. Well, they've done many things, but they've done almost nothing positive, right? What does a newborn baby do? It poops, it cries, it farts, it burps, it eats, and sometimes maybe it sleeps. And it hasn't done really anything deserving of affection at all other than coo maybe once in a while. And yet, as a new parent, what do you do? You, you watch your child intensely. You can't take your eyes off them. You, you contemplate just how much you love them, even though they don't really know you. I mean, they know your voice, they know your smell a little bit, but they don't have really any, any cognitive ability to, to uh, understand you. When they're asleep in their crib or their bassinet or whatever, you just, you just sit over them and hover over them with a big smile on your face and you imagine the future with them and imagine what the future holds for them and you commit that you're gonna do whatever it takes to help them achieve their goals and become the kind of person that God wants them to be. And as they do get older and you try to engage them eye to eye, you know, face to face, and when they start responding, you just, your heart just explodes with excitement. You delight in them. <coughs> That's God to you. You may not believe that, but that's what the blessing, that's what the benediction is promising us, that God has that kind of intimate attention and relational commitment to you. Now, point two, why do we need this? Why is this so great? Well, it's because that's precisely what every human heart is desperate for. Every human heart is desperate for this kind of affirmation. I love you, I delight in you, you are treasured to me. Despite what others may say, I think you are wonderful. Despite what you may think of yourself, I think you're wonderful. You see, you can't give this kind of affirmation to yourself. You can't say to yourself, I'm okay, I know I'm okay, I don't care what anybody else thinks of me, I know I'm valuable. You can't, you can try but you need to have someone of value, someone valuable, tell you you're valuable. During this crisis, um, people are being encouraged, rightfully so, to go visit their neighbors, particularly their single elderly neighbors. Now, maybe you can't go into their house, but you're asked to check up on them. You're asked to call them once in a while. Do things for them if you can. I've done this, and I know that many of you have done this with your neighbors, and what I have found remarkable is that they're appreciative of the contact, but they're not just appreciative of the contact itself, they're, they're so deeply appreciative of what the contact means. Same thing with the giving of the flowers. It's just a flower, it's just a plant, and it's nice, of course, but it's not, you know, you're not paying off their mortgage for them, you're giving them a plant. 
But you've, you've, heard, you've heard the phrase, it's the thought that counts. Well, this is, this is the meaning behind the contact. The person is understanding, look, someone thought of me. Someone remembered me. I'm not forgotten. I matter to someone. Every one of us desperately needs that. When you are kind to your neighbors and you see that smile on their face, that's what's happening to them. They're thinking to themselves, somebody cares. Somebody gives a rip. We need this. Listen, this is what drives so much of what we do. It drives when we hide our sin, we can't admit our problems because we don't want anybody to know that we're a mess because we don't want to be rejected by them. And it drives so much of our, our pursuance of success, whether it be familial or financial or reputation or whatever. I know I'm dating myself, but in a Vanity Fair article from a number of years ago, Madonna said something incredibly revealing. I know most of you are like, who's Madonna? I never heard of her. She was very big in my day, okay? And she said in this uh, Vanity Fair interview, she said this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get another stage, and I'm mediocre, and I'm uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've come to become somebody, I have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. That is one of the fundamental struggles of the human condition to be somebody. You're nobody unless somebody loves you. But what if that struggle could end? What if you could get peace instead of struggle? You know what it says in the end, the Lord turned his face towards you and give you peace, shalom. The, the Hebrew word for peace, it means utter fulfillment of your deepest desires. That's, that's sort of one of the catch-all definitions. And that's what's being offered to us in his presence, to have the presence of God where he affirms us, his love and commitment to us. So that we can get off that treadmill of trying to prove ourselves and trying to protect ourselves from being known too fully and, and too intimately so that people discover how messed up we really are and, and, and that we don't want, they, they don't want anything to do with us again. How do we get it? Final point. It must have freaked Moses out to hear this when, when God told him, you know? The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you? He must have gone, what? Way back in Exodus 33, Moses actually asked God, can I see your face? And God said, or can I see you? And God said, I'll let you see my back, but you cannot see my, my face because no one can look upon my face and live. And the reason is, is because God is supremely holy. He is pure holiness. He is pure perfection. And it cannot, his holiness simply is incompatible with impurity, with, with, with sinfulness. 
This isn't just his anger, okay? This is his nature. It's like fire and water. They cannot coexist with one another. The fire will either consume the water or the water will consume the fire. And God's holiness consumes our sin. That's why the book of Hebrews says that God is a consuming fire. So how in the world can we get this? Well, you know, the benediction, it comes at the end of the service, right? comes at the end of the tabernacle service. It comes at the end of our church services. And, and you know, when it came at the end of the tabernacle service, that meant there were a number of things that happened before it. And the thing that happened right before the, t- the benediction was the sacrifice. An animal was sacrificed. Its blood was spilt. And the animal was cursed. Because it symbolized somehow that God was dealing with the sins of his people. You see, the sins created this this barrier between God and his people. And the the sacrifice meant that 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 barrier could at at least momentarily be removed and God could bless his people. But the the Bible teaches that, that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ came into the world. And he was the son of God, God in the flesh, living among us, walking among us, being among us. And the story is told that at Jesus' baptism, heaven opened up and the voice of God spoke out. And this is what it said. It said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. He heard the benediction. And rightfully so, because he was sinless. And so he had the right to it. He was holy, just as his father was holy. He says himself in the book of John, I and my father are one. There was no chasm between God the Father and God the Son. They were that united. But on Calvary, on that cross, Jesus lost the benediction. And he received a curse instead. I once heard R.C. Sproul tell a, preach an incredible sermon on what was called the, the curse motif in the Bible. And he said, if you take this ironic blessing and you turn it into a curse, you understand what Jesus experienced on the cross. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever. That's what Jesus got on the cross. Instead of you and I hearing a curse, he heard the curse. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. There's that hymn, how deep the father's love for us. You know how it goes. It says, because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We can be sure that we have this blessing when we put our trust in Jesus Christ because he took the curse for us. Now, when that truth sinks into you, you know what happens to you? When you have the blessing and the benediction of God, you know what happens to you? You seek to become a blessing. You seek 
to give the benediction. You look for opportunities in your neighborhood and in your family and in your workplaces and wherever you can because you're not looking for affirmation. You're looking to give information. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, bless and do not curse. This is the meaning of your life, friends. The Lord blesses you and keeps you. He makes his face to shine upon you. He is gracious to you and gives you his peace. Rest in that. Look for that affirmation nowhere else because you'll never find it in such completeness, in such fullness, and in such certainty as you find it right here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your blessing. We thank you that you give us your good word, a word that we are so desperate for but so undeserving of. Thank you so much, Jesus, for taking the curse upon yourself so that we could experience the blessing of our Heavenly Father. And teach us, please, Father, to to live out of that blessing, to remind ourselves day after day that your face is shining upon us, that you are at work in our lives with your, your active relational presence, working out all things in our lives to glorify yourself through, through our flourishing and through our redemption. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.